Section 5 of Chapter 21 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 21, Section 5. Meanwhile, all Europe was looking anxiously towards the Low Countries. The great warrior who had been victorious at Fleurus, at Steinkirk, and at Landen, had not left his equal behind him. But France still possessed marshals well qualified for high command. Already Catinat and Boufflers had given proofs of skill, of resolution, and of zeal for the interests of the state. Either of those distinguished officers would have been a successor worthy of Luxembourg and an antagonist worthy of William. But their master, unfortunately for himself, preferred to both the Duke of Villeroy. The new general had been Lewis's playmate when they were both children, had then become a favourite, and had never ceased to be so. In those superficial graces for which the French aristocracy was then renowned throughout Europe, Villeroy was preeminent among the French aristocracy. His stature was tall, his countenance handsome, his manners nobly and somewhat haughtily polite, his dress, his furniture, his equipages, his table magnificent. No man told a story with more vivacity. No man sat his horse better in a hunting party. No man made love with more success. No man staked and lost heaps of gold with more agreeable unconcern. No man was more intimately acquainted with the adventures, the attachments, the enmities of the lords and ladies who daily filled the halls of Versailles. There were two characters especially which this fine gentleman had studied during many years, and of which he knew all the plats and windings, the character of the king and the character of her who was queen in everything but name. But here ended Villeroy's acquirements. He was profoundly ignorant both of books and of business. At the council board he never opened his mouth without exposing himself. For war, he had not a single qualification, except that personal courage which was common to him with the whole class of which he was a member. At every great crisis of his political and of his military life, he was alternately drunk with arrogance and sunk in dejection. Just before he took a momentous step, his self-confidence was boundless. He would listen to no suggestion. He would not admit into his mind the thought that failure was possible. On the first check, he gave up everything for lost, became incapable of directing, and ran up and down in helpless despair. Lewis, however, loved him and he, to do him justice, loved Lewis, 
the kindness of the master was proof against all the disasters which were brought on his kingdom by the rashness and weakness of the servant, and the gratitude of the servant was honourably, though not judiciously, manifested on more than one occasion after the death of the master. Such was the general to whom the direction of the campaign in the Netherlands was confided. The Duke of Maine was sent to learn the art of war under this preceptor. Maine, the natural son of Louis, by the Duchess of Montespan, had been brought up from childhood by Madame de Maintenon, and was loved by Louis with the love of a father, by Madame de Maintenon with the not less tender love of a foster-mother. Grave men were scandalized by the ostentatious manner in which the king, while making a high profession of piety, exhibited his partiality for this offspring of a double adultery. Kindness, they said, was doubtless due from a parent to a child, but decency was also due from a sovereign to his people. In spite of these murmurs, the youth had been publicly acknowledged, loaded with wealth and dignities, created a duke and peer, placed by an extraordinary act of royal power above dukes and peers of older creation, married to a princess of the blood royal, and appointed grand master of the artillery of the realm. With abilities and courage, he might have played a great part in the world. But his intellect was small, his nerves were weak, and the women and priests who had educated him had effectually assisted nature. He was orthodox in belief, correct in morals, insinuating in address, a hypocrite, a mischief-maker, and a coward. It was expected at Versailles that Flanders would, during this year, be the chief theatre of war. Here, therefore, a great army was collected. Strong lines were formed from the Lys to the Scheld, and Villeroy fixed his headquarters near Tournay. Boufflers, with about twelve thousand men, guarded the banks of the Sombre. On the other side, the British and Dutch troops, who were under William's immediate command, mustered in the neighbourhood of Ghent, the Elector of Bavaria, at the head of a great force, lay near Brussels. A smaller army, consisting chiefly of Brandenburgers, was encamped not far from Hoy. Early in June, military operations commenced. The first movements of William were mere feints intended to prevent the French generals from suspecting his real purpose. He had his heart set on retaking Namur. The loss of Namur had been the most mortifying of all the disasters of a disastrous war. The importance of Namur, in a military point of view, had always been great, and had become greater than ever during the three years which had elapsed since the last siege. New works, the masterpieces of Vauban, had been added to the old defences which had been constructed with the utmost skill of Cohorn. So ably had the two illustrious engineers vied with each other, and cooperated with nature, 
that the fortress was esteemed the strongest in Europe. Over one gate had been placed a vaunting inscription which defied the Allies to wrench the prize from the grasp of France. William kept his own counsel so well that not a hint of his intention got abroad. Some thought that Dunkirk, some that Ypres was his object. The marches and skirmishes by which he disguised his design were compared by St. Simon to the moves of a skilful chest-player. Ficuer, much more deeply versed in military science than St. Simon, informs us that some of these moves were hazardous, and that such a game could not have been safely played against Luxembourg, and this is probably true, but Luxembourg was gone, and what Luxembourg had been to William, William now was to Villeroy. While the king was thus employed, the Jacobites at home, being unable in his absence to prosecute their design against his person, contented themselves with plotting against his government. They were somewhat less closely watched than during the preceding year, for the event of the trials at Manchester had discouraged Aaron Smith and his agents. Trenchard, whose vigilance and severity had made him an object of terror and hatred, was no more, and had been succeeded in what may be called the subordinate secretaryship of state by Sir William Trumbull, a learned civilian and an experienced diplomatist of moderate opinions and of temper cautious to timidity. The malcontents were emboldened by the lenity of the administration. William had scarcely sailed for the continent when they held a great meeting at one of their favourite haunts, the old King's Head in Leadenhall Street. Charnock, Porter, Goodman, Parkins and Fenwick were present. The Earl of Aylesbury was there, a man whose attachment to the exiled house was notorious, but who always denied that he had ever thought of effecting a restoration by immoral means. His denial would be entitled to more credit if he had not, by taking the oaths to the government against which he was constantly intriguing, forfeited the right to be considered as a man of conscience and honour. In the assembly was Sir John Friend, a non-juror who had indeed a very slender wit, but who had made a very large fortune by brewing, and who spent it freely in sedition. After dinner, for the plans of the Jacobites were generally laid over wine, and generally bore some traces of the conviviality in which they had originated, it was resolved that the time was come for an insurrection and a French invasion, and that a special messenger should carry the sense of the meeting to Saint-Germain. Charnock was selected. He undertook the commission, crossed the channel, saw James, and had interviews with the ministers of Lewis, but could arrange nothing. The English malcontents would not stir till ten thousand French troops were in the island, and ten thousand French troops could not, without great risk, be withdrawn from the army which was contending against William in the Low Countries. 
When Charnock returned to report that his embassy had been unsuccessful, he found some of his confederates in jail. They had, during his absence, amused themselves after their fashion by trying to raise a riot in London on the 10th of June, the birthday of the unfortunate Prince of Wales. They met at a tavern in Drury Lane, and when hot with wine sallied forth, sword in hand, headed by porter and goodman, beat kettledrums, unfurled banners, and began to light bonfires. But the watch, supported by the populace, was too strong for the revellers. They were put to rout. The tavern where they had feasted was sacked by the mob. The ringleaders were apprehended, tried, fined and imprisoned, but regained their liberty in time to bear a part in a far more criminal design. By this time all was ready for the execution of the plan which William had formed. That plan had been communicated to the other chiefs of the Allied forces, and had been warmly approved. Vaudemont was left in Flanders with a considerable force to watch Villeroy. The king, with the rest of his army, marched straight on Namur. At the same moment the elector of Bavaria advanced toward the same point on one side, and the Brandenburgers on another. So well had these movements been concerted, and so rapidly were they performed, that the skilful and energetic Boufflers had but just time to throw himself into the fortress. He was accompanied by seven regiments of dragoons, by a strong body of gunners, sappers, and miners, and by an officer named Magrini, who was esteemed the best engineer in the French service, with the exception of Vauban. A few hours after Boufflers had entered the place, the besieging forces closed round it on every side, and the lines of circumvallation were rapidly formed. The news excited no alarm at the French court. There it was not doubted that William would soon be compelled to abandon his enterprise with grievous loss and ignominy. The town was strong, the castle was believed to be impregnable, the magazines were filled with provisions and ammunition sufficient to last till the time at which the armies of that age were expected to retire into winter quarters. The garrison consisted of sixteen thousand of the best troops in the world. They were commanded by an excellent general, he was assisted by an excellent engineer, nor was it doubted that Villeroy would march with his great army to the assistance of Boufflers, and that the besiegers would then be in much more danger than the besieged. These hopes were kept up by the dispatches of Villeroy. He proposed, he said, first to annihilate the army of Vaudemont, and then to drive William from Namur. Vaudemont might try to avoid an action, but he could not escape. The marshal went so far as to promise his master news of a complete victory within twenty-four hours. Lewis passed a whole day in impatient expectation. At last, instead of an officer of high rank loaded with English and Dutch standards, arrived a courier bringing news that Vaudemont, 
had effected a retreat with scarcely any loss, and was safe under the walls of Ghent. William extolled the generalship of his lieutenant in the warmest terms. My cousin, he wrote, you have shown yourself a greater master of your art than if you had won a pitched battle. In the French camp, however, and at the French court, it was universally held that Vaudemont had been saved less by his own skill than by the misconduct of those to whom he was opposed. Some threw the whole blame on Villeroy, and Villeroy made no attempt to vindicate himself. But it was generally believed that he might, at least to a great extent, have vindicated himself had he not preferred royal favour to military renown. His plan, it was said, might have succeeded had not the execution been entrusted to the Duke of Maine. At the first glimpse of danger, the bastard's heart had died within him. He had not been able to concede his poltroonery. He had stood trembling, stuttering, calling for his confessor, while the old officers round him, with tears in their eyes, urged him to advance. During a short time, the disgrace of the son was concealed from the father, but the silence of Villeroy showed that there was a secret. The pleasantries of the Dutch gazettes soon elucidated the mystery, and Lewis learned, if not the whole truth, yet enough to make him miserable. Never during his long reign had he been so moved. During some hours his gloomy irritability kept his servants, his courtiers, even his priests, in terror. He so far forgot the grace and dignity for which he was renowned throughout the world, that in the sight of all the splendid crowd of gentlemen and ladies who came to see him dine at Marley, he broke a cane on the shoulders of a lackey and pursued the poor man with the handle. The siege of Namur, meanwhile, was vigorously pressed by the Allies. The scientific part of their operations was under the direction of Cohorn, who was spurred by emulation to extend his utmost skill. He had suffered, three years before, the mortification of seeing the town as he had fortified it, taken by his great master Vauban, to retake it now that the fortifications had received Vauban's last improvements, would be a noble revenge. On the 2nd of July the trenches were opened. On the 8th a gallant sally of French dragoons was gallantly beaten back, and late on the same evening a strong body of infantry the English foot-guards leading the way, stormed after a bloody conflict the outworks on the Brussels side. The king in person directed the attack, and his subjects were delighted to learn that when the fight was hottest he laid his hand on the shoulder of the elector of Bavaria and exclaimed, Look, look at my brave English! Conspicuous in bravery, even among those brave English, was Cutts, in that bulldog courage which flinches from no danger, however terrible, he was unrivalled. There was no difficulty in finding hardy volunteers 
German, Dutch, and British, to go on a forlorn hope, but Cutts was the only man who appeared to consider such an expedition as a party of pleasure. He was so much at his ease in the hottest fire of the French batteries that his soldiers gave him the honourable nickname of the Salamander. On the 17th, the first counterscarp of the town was attacked. The English and Dutch were thrice repulsed with great slaughter, and returned thrice to the charge. At length, in spite of the exertions of the French officers, who fought valiantly sword in hand on the glacis, the assailants remained in possession of the disputed works. While the conflict was raging, William, who was giving his orders under a shower of bullets, saw with surprise and anger among the officers of his staff Michael Godfrey, the deputy governor of the Bank of England. This gentleman had come to the king's headquarters in order to make some arrangements for the speedy and safe remittance of money from England to the army in the Netherlands, and was curious to see real war. Such curiosity William could not endure. Mr. Godfrey, he said, you ought not to run these hazards. You are not a soldier. You can be of no use to us here. Sir, answered Godfrey, I run no more hazard than your majesty. Not so, said William. I am where it is my duty to be, and I may, without presumption, commit my life to God's keeping. But you... While they were talking, a cannonball from the ramparts laid Godfrey dead at the king's feet. It was not found, however, that the fear of being Godfreyed, such was during some time the cant phrase, sufficed to prevent idle gazers from coming to the trenches. Though William forbade his coachmen, footmen, and cooks to expose themselves, he repeatedly saw them skulking near the most dangerous spots and trying to get a peep at the fighting. He was sometimes, it is said, provoked into horsewhipping them out of the range of the French guns, and the story, whether true or false, is very characteristic. On the 20th of July, the Bavarians and Brandenburgers, under the direction of Cohorn, made themselves masters after a hard fight of a line of works which Vauban had cut in the solid rock from the Sambre to the Meuse. Three days later, the English and Dutch, cuts as usual in the front, lodged themselves on the second counterscarp. All was ready for a general assault, when a white flag was hung out from the ramparts. The effective strength of the garrison was now little more than one half of what it had been when the trenches were opened. Boufflers apprehended that it would be impossible for eight thousand men to defend the whole circuit of the walls much longer, but he felt confident that such a force would be sufficient to keep the stronghold on the summit of the rock. Terms of capitulation were speedily adjusted. A gate was delivered up to the Allies. The French were allowed forty-eight hours to retire into the castle, and were assured that the wounded men whom they left below, about fifteen hundred in number, should be well treated. 
On the sixth, the Allies marched in. The contest for the possession of the town was over, and a second and more terrible contest began for the possession of the citadel. End of section five.